0: You are now entering the mind of one of rock's greatest musicians, a former singer of Styx. The exclusive podcast, Come Sail Away, with Dennis DeYoung. Come sail away, come sail away, come sail away with me. Hey kids, how you doing? Dennis DeYoung here. Good to talk to you again. Listen, we're getting into the Christmas spirit. It's almost that time of year. Jingle bells, mistletoe, let's get drunk and fall on the floor. No, don't do that. That's ridiculous. You, you, you know, you're, you're too heavy now. We can't lift you off the floor. Anyway, um, I wrote a Christmas song. Check it out. It's on uh, YouTube. Just type in uh, When I Hear a Christmas Song, which is a song really about reminiscing about those early days when the first time, remember when Christmas music didn't start in July, but actually began around Christmas time, sometimes after Thanksgiving. And you heard that music and it was so special. But um, the, um, the chorus goes, when I hear a Christmas song, I turn it up and sing along. That's basically the idea. That first moment when it, maybe some snow is falling and you hear the first songs of Christmas and you get that warm, cheery feeling. At least you should. At least I did. It's a good song. Check it out. It's on YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, um, there is a a thing called Behind the Vinyl. It's it's a thing I did up in Canada on Canadian radio because that's where you know that's where uh, 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 Canadian radio is. It's in Canada, and um, they asked me to come in the recording studio uh, and and record this show with a camera. Where they asked me about three songs I've written. And it's called Behind the Vinyl. Check it out, Behind the Vinyl, Dennis DeYoung. And then you just pick up the needle on have a turntable in there, put it put it right on the record, put the stylus on the record. The record plays in the background, and then you just you know you just you just you, you freewheel it and you just talk about the song. And I did, it turned out pretty good It gives you a good idea. But listen, if I was to talk to you about Babe today, the whole journey and what the song meant to me and to sticks. ultimately would be an hour discussion. And nobody wants to hear me talk for an hour on these things, I don't think. If you do, uh, I'll, subs- I'll get a subscription here and start getting paid for this. <laughs> no, I won't. But so I'm going to try to give you um, the thumbnail sketch. You know, it was never written, as many of you know, from for Sticks. It was a birthday present to my wife. I ran in the studio real quick with John and Chuck Bonazzo. Guitar players were off on vacation. I had written it in less than two days, and I wanted to give it to her on her birthday. Never thinking of Sticks. Never thinking it was a song for Sticks. So we did this demo. The demo turned out so good. I mean, it really was wonderful. I sang all the background parts because Tommy and Jay wasn't there. There were no guitar parts on it because there were no guitar players the day, the day we did the, the demo. And the demo was so good. People fell in love with that, that demo that me personally, I got paralyzed with fear of trying to re-record it because there was something so special about it. Even though when I listened to Babe, I, I think I could have sung that so much better But it was something about it people loved. So I was afraid, I, me, Dennis, was afraid to screw around with. That's why there's no power chords. It wasn't a typical, what they would call, power ballad from us. Outside of Tommy's brilliant guitar solo, uh, on the uh, on on the solo section, there are no guitars. It's basically a you know a, a electric piano, a, str- a little string line, the drums and bass. That's it. That's all that's on there because that's what was on the original demo. But people fell in love with it. God bless him. It was our only number one record, of course. And it was our only really charted single in other parts of the world at the same time. So it was cool from that point of view. Uh, The reason I bring this up is because somebody posted on my Facebook page. If you've never been to my Facebook page... So you might have a laugh. I write all the stuff that's on there. Uh, and as my wife has pointed out in concert many, many, many times in the morning when I'm eating my breakfast and waiting for the prune juice to kick in, uh, I read out everything that's that, that, that's written on that Facebook page. So, so go ahead and go to it because somebody posted, Dennis, did you know that this is uh, it, on this week um, uh, in 1979, which is, I think, 38 years ago? Um, Babe was, was number one, and honest to God, if he hadn't written that, uh, I wouldn't have remembered it, although when I think back, it should have been a pretty nice Christmas if you get a number one record like two weeks before Christmas. But really, uh, by and large, I have a lot of what would be uh, considered negative memories and feelings about Babe. Um, it's a long story, and maybe on the next podcast, I'll get into that whole thing. But really, w- what it turns out to me, in my mind, as, m- as I recall it, the demo was so good. We didn't turn it into a typical sticks power ballad, because I personally was afraid uh, to change the demo. Because we had gone through this, we had just learned this lesson on Pieces of Eight, when we had demoed Renegade. I may have told you this story, but it's a good story. We demoed Renegade at Gary Loiso Studio Pumpkin. And it turned out fantastic. We thought we had something with Renegade. Oh, we were in love with it. Loved it. But then we went in the recording studio to Paragon, and we we re-recorded it start to finish. And for some odd reason, we felt collectively it didn't capture the magic of the demo. Now, if I went back right now and listened to that demo and to the final product that we came up with, uh, I I might change my mind. I might think, what do we like about that demo? Maybe nothing. Maybe the fact that it was so brand new and we all we all loved it and people loved it when they heard it, that we were being, I I don't know, swayed by people's reactions. Because believe me, you can be when people fall in love with something and you start thinking, oh, this other version, this new one, the one that you've heard on the radio all these years, it's not as good. And you could be completely dead wrong because as smart as you think we are, we're not. We're easily malleable, not not as much as some people, but sometimes you know you can be swayed by, by what people say. So when we went in, uh, we're doing "Babe," and we're recording it and dug on it. It was so good, I was like, I was a mental case. We got right down, you know, to um to mixing it, and what happened was, I. I couldn't, I couldn't fix it. We're all sitting in the room. In those days, everybody mixed at the same time because all hands had to be on the board because there was no automation, which means that you can go back and fix things one thing at a time. No, you had to mix the whole track like a performance. So you had engineers with their hands on the boards and musicians. Everyone had a specific duty on how to mix a specific part of the song. So it was like a performance. I was in there. I was driving everybody batty because I... I I just felt like this was the number one record in my mind and we were going to screw it up. We meaning me. So to reiterate, when we were making the song together, nobody had a bad feeling about that song. Not one member of the band. No one. And so we're mixing it. And finally, JY had to ask me, "Uh, Dennis, uh, maybe you should step outside the studio for for a few minutes and uh, let us just finish this. We're there. It was good advice. Get out of this room because you're ter- you're like you're like nuts. What's wrong with you? This is good. It'll be fine. And so I, I stepped out for like 15 minutes. Came back in. It was done. And there it was. The mix was completed. We were we were really there before I left. But I was like you know you get like you get paranoid. You don't know what you're doing anymore in that in the recording studio. So um, we were all together on that song when we did it, and it, and it did turn out great. And. Uh, ultimately all the controversy that has surrounded uh, the song, it's really based on things that at some point maybe I'll get into in one of these podcasts because it's its, it's, it's really going deep on what was going on within uh, the workings of the band. And it has a lot to do with the perceived success of Pieces of Eight. In other words, by perceived I mean um, when Renegade did become a hit quite by accident. We have so many songs that become hits by accident. It's ridiculous uh, because it was really uh, the third release off Pieces of Eight. Blue Collar was first. Then we released Sing for the Day, and Renegade was on the flip side of that record. Well, people were, were hearing us play Renegade live, and it was kick. It just kicked the booty, if you know what I mean. And And when radio stations got... Sing for the day. They they played. They listened to the flip side. They liked Renegade better because guess what? When we originally recorded Renegade as a demo, we thought it was awful special. And then like like Mooks, we don't release it first because the demo poisoning it just changed their whole perception of us collectively as a band. Blue collar man should not have been the first release. Should have been Renegade. It would have really changed the whole destiny of everything. But because Renegade was flipped and added was the third single, by that time, by the time Renegade caught on regionally, region by region across the country, um, it never reached a high chart position, though it should have. It got, I think, only to number 16, which is, you know, it's okay, but that's no big deal. Renegade really deserved to be in the top three, because it was really in the top three at every market that it was played in, but it happened uh, incrementally. If you want a number one record in those days, you had to have like a rush of radio stations playing it all in a small time frame. This is how you got number one records. And Renegade took so long to build that it didn't get that. Though it deserved it. This is, this is business, music business crap. Not about the, you know, the validity of the song. But back to Babe. Um, obviously, there's been uh, some controversy surrounding Babe. But when we first recorded it, there was zero, none. Not within the musicians, never. We were all, we were just, it was another song, a great song, and we were all participating um, in the creation of the product. Like I said, even though J.Y. did not play on the record, because um, there, were, but there are no guitars other than the solo, he was, he was instrumental and in, in, you know, in telling me to get the hell out of the room for a minute. Okay, You're driving everybody batty. So it was a collective. Um, it was only subsequent to the success of Babe, the overwhelming uh, success of it, that problems began to arise. And I think probably another podcast, I'll get on to what my perceptions of were the reasons um, for, for these, uh, shall we say, um, difficulties that arise, that would arise after Babe went to number one. It was our only number one record. And it was, I think I mentioned this before, but the week it was released, it got more ads than any record it had got on, on radio stations in, you know, in, in the first week. It was monumental. It went on everywhere all at once in the first week. And this is what help, help, helps you get a number one record because everyone went at it all at once, uh, which reminds me, the record it replaced at number one. Because we were number two and it was looking again like we were just not going to get the number one. Frustrating, I'm telling you. So what happens? Barbra Streisand and Donna Summer had a song called "Enough Is Enough," which I thought summed it up. But nonetheless, um, that was that was holding on because it had two huge, powerful female stars on this, doing a duet with two powerful record companies working the record by working means, trying to get promotion, doing deals to get it to number one and make it stay there. We were, we were facing a formidable foe. In those days, charts could be manipulated very easily by the power, the money, and the juice behind any record. And a and as wonderful as a record company was, uh, Jerry Moss uh, uh, and um, Herb Alpert, great people, artists in the position of being businessmen, couldn't be a better place to be. They didn't have the juice. They didn't have, the, um, they didn't have their own distribution. They didn't have the juice. We were fighting Columbia. You Columbia Records, my God. They were the behemoth. So we were thinking we were going to get there. Well, bingo. We got there. Babe slid in there for a couple weeks and went to number one. And as you know, won the People's Choice Award. As I've mentioned many times on stage, I, have, uh, I, I won songwriter Song of the Year for that song. And of course, later in that year, I won the Nobel Peace Prize. Three, four. Okay, so <clears throat> um, that's that, That's kind of like a, a thumbnail sketch of Babe. I think I might get into the, the whole, what it caused in the dynamic a, a, a within the band and, and the fear. And the fear that if you did a ballad like Babe, a straight ballad, that somehow we would lose our rock credibility. Because that was really, um, that was a going belief at the time. And the number one proponent of that for so many people was the band Chicago, which went from kind of a jazz rock um, uh, horn band, very, very cool, uh, ultimately uh, uh, turning into a band that made an awful lot of ballads with, you know, when uh, Peter Cetera and uh, David Foster got together. So there was the fear of that happening to us, particularly primarily from our manager who was dead wrong, absolutely dead wrong. It hurt nothing. It did not hurt us. We sold sold the same amount of albums uh, that we did on on Grand Delusion and and Pieces of Eight and would have sold even more if First Time had been released. Second, it wasn't. It was stopped, something I will discuss in the future. But, But nonetheless, to prove that it's not true, the first release from Paradise Theater that went to number three was Best of Times, which was, you know, a ballad. It was a ballad. So... And Paradise Theater went on to sell more than a cornerstone, for goodness sakes, and became one of our most popular albums. Listen, what people want, by and large, is are great songs. They want songs, okay? Sure, they'd like, everybody likes a rock song. I love a rock song. You love a great rock song. But people still like great songs. They just do. And so, as we celebrate, I do. I think I'll go out tonight <clears throat> and have, you know, extra cheese on a pizza, something like that. I don't know. Uh, babe went to number one 38 years ago. Son of a gun. That's really something. And when I play it live, still to this day, people lock arms and, and, and with their loved ones, and they, and, and they think about Babe. A song I wrote from my, my beautiful wife, Suzanne, which was a song about separation. This is Dennis DeYoung. Uh, and by, wait a minute, I better clarify. Separation means you got to go away. You don't want to go away. Because you're missing your loved one, and it's a song about separation in that manner, not the other kind of separation. But a period on it. There we go. Anyway, here's hoping that the universe is spinning in your direction. Cheers, Dennis D. Young. Enlightening? Perhaps. Entertaining? Always. Thanks for listening to the podcast, Come Sail Away with Dennis D. Young. Get the next new episode Friday morning at 7 a.m. on this website.